Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. Maybe our motto has never been more correct than today. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. We will be talking today about the January 6 hearings. We were supposed to talk about it last week, but because of the Supreme Court decision annulling Roe v. Wade, we uh, delayed it for this week, and we have two guests with us. Chris Walker is a news writer at Truthout. He is based out of Madison. He focuses on uh, both national and local topics since the early 2000s. He has produced thousands of articles analyzing the issues of the day and their impact on the American people, and thank you Chris for joining us today and John Alsop is also with us. He's a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Review of Books, Foreign Policy and The Nation among other outlets. He writes the Columbia Journalism Review's newsletter The Media Today and thank you John for uh, joining us today too. Let's um, start with you uh, Chris since you can be with us for only the first half hour what has has or have been your main takeaways from the hearing so far so my main take well thank you for having me uh, so my main takeaway from the, the hearing so far is that the committee is really trying to show uh, how much uh, former president Donald Trump's involvement in the weeks preceding the The January 6th capital attack and on the day of the attack itself how much influence he and his allies have really had on uh, the people who eventually did attack the capital and also to showcase how much behind the scenes they were uh, essentially attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election which of course he lost um, they've really showcased uh, to a great deal how uh, people surrounding Trump, We're telling him every day that you know he was uh, wrong about election fraud claims but in spite of these people telling him these things he kept pushing it anyway um, pushing for the Department of Justice to investigate these false claims of fraud uh, and even going so far as to try to find ways to install people uh, beneficial to his cause into the DOJ uh, into positions of power there. And why do you think they uh, feel or think that that is um, such an important point? Do you think there is a hope there that he will be put on trial? Or, or what, what do you think is the game uh, play here? Sure. So what I really think is that the committee um, is really trying to make the case that uh, what Trump did was Uh, criminal I, I really do believe that that's what they're uh, attempting to showcase here um, obviously there is some disconnect between the committee members themselves uh, some of them have said they are not sure yet whether they're going to make a formal uh, ask of the Department of Justice to uh, investigate Trump further or to charge him or make formal uh, calls for his being charged uh, whereas some Other committee members have said that, that they're not going to do that and they're going to leave the Department of Justice, uh, leave it up to them to decide what to do. But ultimately, they are laying out the foundations for a case to show that uh, not only did Trump know that his allegations were wrong, but also 
that Trump's actions directly led to the attack of the Capitol building and the attempted uh, usurping of the election results. And let me ask you one more question before we go to John. So let's say that they succeed. Let's say that the DOJ takes it over. Let's say that there is a trial, which I'm I'm thinking about the what even just putting him on trial might um, bring about considering um, the many people who still support him. And yeah. let's say that um, he is found responsible for the coup attempt and even that um, there is a decision for him to be incarcerated for, let's say, two years or whatever. Sure. Um, <laughs> what happens then? What happens after uh, he gets that charge, um, or if, if he's convicted? I'm, you know, it's really anyone's guess about what happens after that. Really, um, obviously, if he's uh, on trial or if he is ultimately convicted, um, he cannot run for president. Although he might try even behind bars if that happens, who knows? But um, it, it's really anyone's guess uh, what his supporters will do after that point how they will react to that. And uh, really, uh, uh, it could range from um, the hopeful thing where they would not do anything in reaction to that and maybe move on. I'm, I'm, I'm really skeptical that that would happen. Um, I would actually believe that they would uh, try to find ways to undo that. Or, um, you know, I could even see a scenario where certain actors might uh, take different kinds of actions that would be criminal themselves. Yeah. Well, John, let me ask you the same question, the same original question. What is your main takeaway so far from the hearings? Uh, well, thank you also for having me first. Um, Madison is one of my favorite cities. I have uh, a couple of friends there, so I've been on a number of occasions. Uh, so it's great to be talking with you. Um, I guess I've been following the hearings mostly through a media lens, because uh, I've been writing about them for the Columbia Journalism Review's daily newsletter, which I write. Um, I think politically, I would share a lot of Chris's takeaways, so I won't kind of reiterate those. But, but from a media point of view, I think it's really striking how well the committee has laid out its case and how thoughtful I think it seems to have been about the best way to communicate um, you, you know sprawling but ultimately quite simple when you boil it right down set of facts in, in the modern media environment. Um, it really shouldn't take committee hearings like this to convince the entirety of the American people that something terribly wrong happened on January 6th really it should be it should be enough to have seen what we all saw with our own eyes that, that Trump obviously tried to lead a coup attempt over a period of months and then obviously culminating in the insurrectionary violence of that day. But but yeah, um, you know, the committee is obviously trying to lay out what happened, um, both in introducing new details, but also kind of putting everything that's known about that day into a kind of coherent narrative for people who maybe don't pay so much attention to the news all the time or people who might be sort of skeptical of the political case that's been made about that day to this point, uh, but, but who are sort of still maybe convincible, um, aren't so much in Trump's corner that they, they sort of completely made up their minds and think the whole thing is, is a hoax and a witch hunt. Um, and I think you also have to kind of be prepared for media coverage when you're a committee kind of putting on this type of uh, these types of hearings you have to be prepared for the media to judge it as a spectacle and on the basis of optics um, which again I think is a shame but which is just a reality of how these things work we all remember um, when Robert Mueller went to Congress to do a hearing a couple of months after his report came out um, he was perceived unfairly I think as being sort of doddery and old and unconvincing and not maybe across the detail of his report which was never really his his job to perform it in a in a kind of spectacle sense um, but but you know, he was savaged in the press after that for not you know not making his case strongly enough and I think if the committee had been seen to put on hearings that were boring or overly technical or sort of mired in partisan sniping then yeah, that then I think that the reviews would have been very harsh and maybe um, 
you know, the mainstream press would have told people to stop paying attention. As it is, I think they've put on hearings which seem to be incredibly tightly organized. You don't have, um, you know, hours and hours, as you often do at these events, of different uh, congressmen getting on their high horse and trying to steal the limelight. It's, it's usually one or two members of the committee per session who's been focused on laying out a kind of chapter of the case. As several people have noted, um, they, they sort of have pursued a narrative arc through the hearings um, as, as a whole, um, laying out different chapters of the story and then kind of tying them together. Uh, and obviously, whatever the reasons for having the surprise hearing that they held this week, and it seems like there could be a few reasons why it was organized at the last minute, the effect of it certainly was that it was it grabbed people's attention because it was it was almost like a surprise episode of a TV series dropping, right? So I think they've been very clever about tying everything together in a very sophisticated way, not abandoning the format of the congressional hearing so much that you lose all of the kind of gravitas that goes with that format. But at the same time, um, abandoning the bad bits of the format in a way that means it can kind of reach out to people who might not normally sit and watch you know, a standard congressional hearing, while at the same time, I think innovating enough and dropping enough new information to keep the more reactionary optics obsessed elements of the political media interested. So I think, I guess, yeah, I guess my takeaway through the, from the prism through which I've been looking at this is that they've done a really solid, inventive job with, with laying out what happened so far. Yeah, they seem to be more sophisticated than uh, the usual, um, the usual non-spectacle. Really, I think of congressional hearings. Um, mm. how, how how do you explain that? Well, I think one thing that's been immensely helpful is that they're all on the same page, right? I mean, there was a version of this committee that we could have seen, which had a bunch of um, Republican members on it, whose sole uh, job there would have been to derail the whole thing on behalf of their party's leadership who want to either you know downplay january 6th or completely excuse it um obviously we saw that when when uh, the idea of an independent bipartisan commission to investigate january 6th fell down there was some debate as to what the the house committee that would replace that commission would look like the republican leadership in the house put forward a bunch of people to serve on the committee some of whom were arguably complicit themselves in the events of january 6th um, but it certainly would, would seem to be the, the sorts of Republicans who are interested in spinning it for their own partisan ends. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said, no, the Republicans basically pulled out of, they said, you know, this is not going to be our people. Um, um, we, if we're not going get, to get to put our own people on the committee, then we're not going to have anything to do with it at all. And so the Democrats in the end had complete control over the composition of the committee. Um, they obviously did invite two Republicans to join them, uh, Liz Cheney, the, the vice chair of the committee. And Adam Kinzinger, although these were both Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after the insurrection, both um, conservative Republicans on, you know, most usual axes, but on this particular issue of, of Trump and what happened on January 6th and after the election, um, obviously on, on the same page to a large extent as Democratic critics of Trump. In fact, actually, in some ways, to believe some of the reporting that comes out from behind the scenes, in Cheney's case, maybe even more aggressive in going after Trump than some of the Democrats on the committee are. But, but broadly speaking, they're all on the same page. And... Um, at the time when the committee's composition was announced, I remember several uh, political journalists said, this is a disaster for the Democrats because no one will take this committee seriously. They, they, they screwed up the chance to have a bipartisan reckoning that would reach out into the country. Um, I thought that was ludicrous at the time because the sorts of people the Democrats had said the Republicans couldn't appoint to the committee were people whose sole purpose would have been to tank the committee's work, which means there's no point having them on the committee. Um, but there was this narrative among the kind of bipartisanship obsessed political press that this would lack legitimacy. Uh, but actually what that composition has allowed them to do is, as I said, all be on the same page. So rather than having hearings where you have a, a Jim Jordan or whoever or Devin Nunes, uh, interjecting every five minutes with procedural points and you know diversionary questions and self-serving rants as you saw with many of these types of hearings in the trump presidency itself you've had um yeah they've all been on the same page and so they've been able to kind of tightly script where they're going with these hearings and turn them into as i just described sort of tv sessions almost episodes of a series in and of themselves they've had that narrative control and so in the end, and by the way, I think they also do have some, if you care about bipartisan credibility, I think they do have that because almost all of the witnesses they've heard from have been Republicans who were around 
Trump uh, in, in the run-up to or on January 6th. Cheney has taken a really leading role in prosecuting some of the questioning at these hearings. So they have, I don't think they've sacrificed any sense that Republicans are, are fully involved in this process, but they've done it on their own terms. They've done it in a way that doesn't distract or, or sort of start from a place of denying or fighting over the very basic facts of January 6th. But they've been able to sort of control the storyline of the way these hearings have been put forward. And I think that's been an immense benefit compared to the partisan ugly food fights that these things can often turn into. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's true. I think all of us are so tired of um, hearing the Republicans coming up with um, all these objections and in, not not letting a Democrat talk. So, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that. Thank you. Um, Chris, so this latest hearing on uh, the 28th with Cassidy Hutchinson um, was... Um, I think more impactful than the previous ones, though I think that um, quite a few things were revealed in the previous ones, but um, having listened to Cassidy Hutchinson, I think no one can have a doubt anymore that Trump was basically leading a coup attempt. What What do you think about that? And what uh, did you hear from her that you felt was important or, or that changes the story here? Well, I would agree with your assessment there. I think that her, her testimony was very compelling. I think that uh, the fact that she worked directly for former chief of staff Mark Meadows, she was in meetings constantly with Meadows and oftentimes with Trump himself. Um, I think that there's very, it's a very difficult case that, uh, well, Trump and his allies are currently pushing to discredit her as much as possible, but it's very difficult to discredit her due to the fact that she was in these meetings. She was in the White House when this was happening. She was having these conversations. She was speaking with members of Congress as the Capitol building was being attacked. Um, so a lot of attention has been put on some of the things that she talked about, she talked about, you know, the, the, the major thing that I think that I've been seeing on social media shared is him throwing his sandwich against the wall of the White House when he got told that the election was not rigged. But that's not the main takeaway that should be heard here. The main thing that we that I heard from Cassidy Hutchinson was the stories of her telling about how Trump was upset that members of his uh, mob of loyalists, when they were outside the White House, they were being told they couldn't enter the rally that he was holding there uh, because they some people were uh, armed, frankly, with weapons, ar armed with uh, rifles, uh, guns, things like that. And when Trump heard that, he was furious and he said things like, uh, these are not the people, they're not here to hurt me, let them in. And I think that that was one half of the story there, because the other half of the story is that Trump wanted these people to go to the Capitol, right? So they wanted to go to the Capitol. He knew that some of the members of these, this mob was armed, and that didn't, that frankly did not matter to him. And that just showcases more evidence that this was a, a planned attempt to influence Congress, influence Mike Pence specifically to agree to overturn the election, even though he didn't have those constitutional powers to do so. Um, I'm also taken aback by how, you know, she calls for the 25th Amendment were mentioned after uh, the attack happened. And we, all, we already knew that, but to the extent that Hutchinson uh, described them, it was a much deeper conversation between principals in the White House than we previously knew. And I think that that really goes to show, again, more evidence that people in the White House knew what Trump did was wrong, and they knew that uh, what he did was possibly illegal. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that um, I found most shocking even though it wasn't really new, but um, his support that um, that we now heard from um, Hutchinson that um, he did really support hanging Mike Pence. And um, Mike right. Pence was so um, loyal to him throughout this time. And of course, 
through his four years in the presidency, um, people who were loyal to him at some point were thrown away, and he was talking crap about them. But but you know to to support hanging his uh, vice president. Um, what, what what did you think about that? Well, like you said, that was something that we've we've known for 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 a few few months now. Um, there was an interview with uh, ABC's John Carl about that. But um, to hear it again in in the context of these hearings, uh, to to uh, in the background of uh, understanding where Trump's mindset was, the way that. Hutchinson was telling us it's deeply troubling. It's it's it, here's a man who was like you said loyal to him for the four years that he was in office, and then to say that uh, oh because you disagree with me on this one point, especially on a point that again he doesn't have the constitutional authority to carry out, uh, to say that you know he's going to support his supporters' calls for hanging Mike Pence um, again, and one of the things this these committee hearings have found is that they got close to getting to him, right? They got within 40 feet of the vice president. Uh, God only knows what was going to happen if they had reached him. And I, I think that hearing Trump's mindset, like you said, that he was supportive of their calls to do that, um, it, it really, really makes you wonder just to what extent would he have allowed, what would happen to our democracy if that had happened? Yeah. And and what would Trump have done after that happened? And it just boggles the mind, really. Yeah, and of course they had constructed the gallows, and uh, yeah. in that interview to ABC, he justified it. It's it's all too shocking. Um, Chris, um, since we have to let you go in a couple minutes, um, I just wanted to ask you before you leave about the role of Ron Johnson as uh, we are discovering it more and more since... He is our senator. Right. <laughs> so Yours and his mine. Involvement in this, yeah, it was it, 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 equally boggling, right? So he received uh, the electors from Michigan, the, the, the fake electors, I should say, the ones who the Republicans in Michigan and the Republicans in Wisconsin wanted to uh, have counted in the electoral college certification process. And... Um, you know, he's really downplayed his role in this and saying that, you know, his office had it only for a few minutes. He only thought about it for a few seconds. But, you know, he is his office did call the vice president, uh, former vice president at the time, trying to say, hey, do you want these? Do you will you will you take these? Um, I really think that you can't downplay your role in something if you're actively trying to give this to the vice president, which he ultimately said or his office ultimately said. They did not want anything to do with that, and that was what halted that from happening. But uh, again, Ron Johnson minimizing his role in this, minimizing his um, his underlings' role in this, and it really goes the whole thing goes against what is supposed to be happening. And uh, Johnson's, uh, I really, I, I really wonder how voters will react to that. Uh, once the election really kicks off here, once the Democratic candidate in Wisconsin is chosen, and whether if a debate happens, uh, that will play a major role in the debates in the state. Yeah. Well, Chris Walker, writer from Madison, uh, he is a news writer at Truthout. He produces a lot of articles for them. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, with us is still John Alsop, freelance journalist. Um, has, he has written for the New York Review of Books, Foreign Policy, The Nation, and he writes the uh, daily newsletter of the Columbia Journalism Review, The Media Today. And I want to ask you, uh, John, about the hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson. You wrote, I think, in your latest um, um, column, something that I also thought that um, maybe there was in the media too much until that hearing um, 
shock and awe, right? Like, oh, we're shocked that this, but but we have seen it. We have seen it on January 6th. I was watching three different um, television stations just to see as much as I could. It's not really shocking to know that um, that there was a, a coup attempt. It's not really shocking that uh, Trump was behind it. But um, the hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson did tell us some things that we didn't know before. Yeah, totally. I, I wrote in my newsletter, and I've written this a few times actually. That I think a big, I think a big problem with political media in general is there's this constant kind of desire for novelty right and and there's this kind of archetype of the investigative journalist or the sort of perfect journalistic investigation as being like watergate i mean that's such a kind of culturally resonant memory isn't it and in watergate it's like you start off with some perplexing clues that don't make sense and you sort of dig away and you hit brick walls and then you force through them and then you go to a parking garage and meet with a shady guy whose face you can't quite see but the trilby hat who hands you an envelope full of secrets and then you get some more secrets and eventually the president resigns right that's the kind of like <laughs> that's the kind of historic archetype of a journalistic investigation and um that was actually not exactly how watergate went down uh, as i wrote recently in a, in a piece about the kind of myths of the media myths of watergate 50, 50 years on from the break-in but but in the modern age it's it's really different isn't it because especially with trump you have a guy who's not afraid to do absolutely awful things and and sort of commit presidential scandals in full public view and this has been the case since before he was president and it was the case all the way through his presidency um, and I wrote about this a lot around his first impeachment, uh, with the, with the, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the things he said to and about Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, which I think has kind of been forgotten in the annals of Trumpism, but was a big scandal at the time, whereby it was pretty obvious what Trump had done, um, you know, trying to leverage foreign aid to get uh, another country, one which has, of course, since been invaded by a neighboring power um to dig up dirt on a domestic political opponent trump then pretty much came out and admitted that was what he was doing and reiterated it and this was really clear in the media coverage but then as the story dragged on it was kind of like well what more do we have and it seems like it seemed like a lot of the coverage kind of drove down these cul-de-sacs where it became kind of conjectural whereas actually the kind of basic behavior at issue the basic behavior he was impeached over had been really obvious from the start. And I think here you have that on steroids, right? You have a president who lost an election very clearly, spent months refusing to accept that he'd lost, spouted the most appalling lies, um, you know, publicly endorsed and, and sort of obviously behind the scenes was trying to maneuver these clearly unlawful and, and astoundingly kind of undemocratic tactics to overturn the result. And who then went to the ellipse, gave a kind of blood and thunder speech inciting a mob of you know, people to storm the capital. Um, and then they did. And that was really obvious. And I worried going into this story that the kind of media thirst for new details would lead to a kind of, could lead to a situation again, where if the January 6th committee didn't come with new details, then then the kind of story we already knew would be implicitly at least devalued. Whereas actually the story we already know is extremely shocking, extremely damning and extremely scary. The president of the United States refused to accept uh, a fair election result and then tried to overturn it. We know that. Um, and over the months, I think leading into these hearings, you see these books coming out and these news stories coming out um, with really important details about what was going on behind the scenes between election night and January 6th in, in Trump world. Um, and I think, you know, all those, all those new details are really important to find out so that we can build a full historical record of what happened. But very often they've been sold in the media as stunning new revelations or, you know, this was much worse than we thought. And actually, I, my reaction has very often been, well, what we thought and what we knew was that the president incited a mob of his supporters to storm the Capitol to overturn an election result he didn't like. So I don't really see what can be much worse than that. That's pretty much as bad as it, as bad as it gets, right? Um, and so a lot of these details from behind the scenes of like, well, you know, Rudy Giuliani said X to Y person in secret. So well, you know, Rudy Giuliani was saying all manner of absolutely unhinged things in very public forums at that time. I think, I think the bar to truly say this was worse than we thought has to be, has to be set very, very high. And I think that because political journalists like novelty 
and scoops very often you'd see reporting which claims to surpass that bar when it didn't really in my opinion and i think and as i wrote this week i think with cassidy hutchinson's testimony the committee managed to clear that bar right like it, they actually managed to show through her testimony that it was even worse than we thought like it was it wasn't just you know what we knew which was that trump whipped up these people to go and um, storm the capitol it was that he wanted to be at the head of the pack he wanted to lead them there and then uh you know according to hutchinson's testimony when uh, he was told he was being driven back to the white house physically assaulted a secret service agent and tried to grab this grab the steering wheel of the car i mean that is extraordinary new detail that i think fundamentally does move the story on but I think it's important also to remember that just because it's moved the story on and maybe shown that things were worse than we thought, it, none of this actually was needed to show that this was a very, 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 very bad scandal. The, the January 6th committee is not, as I think several of its members have said publicly, it's not a whodunit. They're not, it's not a Watergate-style investigation where they're trying to drill down into some deep mystery. They're trying to lay out a convincing and comprehensive narrative of something that we all saw with our own eyes. It, it, it's the consummate Trump era scandal in that sense, the kind of apogee of Trump era scandals. Um, and I, I do worry that, and this hasn't been a universal thing, but I do worry that some of the coverage in the wake of the hearing has kind of obsessed over the literal truth of some of the more salacious yet not necessarily most important details. Like, yeah, does it, does it matter if the bit about Trump trying to physically grab the steering wheel if the car is true. Yeah, it matters, of course. Journalism is about finding out the truth. All the details we know should be true. Um, and so if it, you know, if it's true that the people in the car with Trump are willing to, as, as some Secret Service sources have said, go under oath and rebut Hutchinson's testimony, then that's important. Um, but it's nowhere near as important as the fundamental truth, which again, we all saw with our own eyes. And it's not important as the fact that Trump was apparently in that car ride. No, no one is disputing that on that car ride when he was told he wasn't going to the Capitol, he was absolutely furious. I mean, like the thing about grabbing the steering wheel is a very colorful and resonant and shocking detail, but it doesn't change the fact, whether he did or not, it doesn't change the fact that he was trying to lead them up to the Capitol. That's the story. And I think that some of the coverage I've seen has got bogged down in whether that detail is true and then tried to draw these very editorialized conclusions about how if it's not true, it's a terrible blow for the committee and it calls the whole testimony into question. I just think that's rubbish. And yeah. I think that people need to keep their eyes very much on the prize here, which is we saw what happened with our own eyes. Sure, it's important to have that laid out and to get new details where those exists, uh, where those exist, sorry. But, but yeah. I think it has to, we have to be mindful of that really high bar for, you know, for, for what we already you, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I've seen it. a lot of um, discussion of ketchup on the wall, which mm -hmm. again, it's a it visually, it's it's it it speaks to us, but um, that's not the most important thing, right? That's uh, far right. from being the. Uh, most important thing. I want to invite our, our listener to join the conversation if they have uh, relevant questions or comments. 608-256-2001 extension 9. You can also join us on social media at Word Talk on Twitter, a public affair on Facebook. We don't have much time, so if you want to uh, join us, you might want to do it soon. Last week we got a really big and important question at three minutes to the hour so uh that person did not get to ask his question so um you mentioned um the uh watergate um hearings the watergate situation it is the 50th anniversary which is very interesting uh timing wise but i wonder um when you think about uh, the media, and by the way, I have invited people to call, but John, as he mentioned before, his specialty is the media. So uh, you might want to think about that before you call. So anyway, going back to Watergate, John, um, do you think, how, how do you think this would have... Um, ended if this happened now with the way the media is now with the fact that we have so many medias and that we have fox news and so on and so forth do you think that it would have resolved the same way as it has yeah i think it's it's really tough to compare different historical events because there are so many contingencies involved in any historical 
event, right? Like, there is this narrative, which I think you're alluding to, whereby people think that if the if the Watergate hearings had happened today, then Nixon would have got away with it because he would have just pulled a Trump and said, well, sure, I did it, but like, so what? I don't care. My supporters love me. I'm not going to resign. Screw you. Try and impeach me. And, you know, the, the House and Senate would have managed to not remove him from office because there would have been too many Republicans too scared of what Fox News might say about them. That's the kind of narrative, right? Like, the, the back then we had two strong political parties that were that had enough members that valued the truth and sanctity of institutions to kind of force accountability on bad actors. And then we had a media environment with three networks and, uh, you know, a, a handful of major national newspapers. So, so they could kind of inform the debate with a shared version of the truth, not not sort of muddied by online misinformation. And, and obviously, the implicit argument there is that now it's completely different because you do have Fox News, you do have all sorts of online streams of information. There isn't this kind of quote unquote shared set of facts and that in that environment, Nixon would get away with it. Um, I think, I think to some, I mean, certainly true to, to make those comparisons between the information ecosystem today and back then, but I think it's a bit muddier than that. I think that you have to remember that Nixon, if things had broken slightly differently, may not even have had to resign in the early 1970s, right? Like just, it, it was, it was not, um, a necessary condition for his resignation that there was this this kind of shared set of facts bounded gatekeeper heavy media landscape um lots of other things had to fall into place too and and with perhaps just the the coverage of the washington post for example um and without the kind of you know parallel congressional and justice department activity um yeah you might have arrived at a situation where where um uh you know nixon didn't feel he had to resign so things could have played differently back then and i think on the other hand yeah, someone like Nixon could have a kind of Trumpian impulse to just bluff his way through today. But then, it's a, again, it's a hard comparison to make because Trump's whole incentive structure is I can do whatever I want pretty publicly and people, my supporters won't care and I'll get away with it. Whereas the kind of crux of Nixon's behavior was extremely paranoid, extremely secretive. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it can be hard to kind of draw clean conclusions. But I certainly think that it's fair to say that the information ecosystem today is a lot harder to unify around sort of certain established sources of information and that that does provide an opportunity to people who can weaponize dissent and uh, disinformation online. I think the flip side of it very quickly is that it's all well and good to have a common set of facts defined by a relatively few gatekeepers but that has downsides too and while the internet has introduced you know floods of disinformation and divisive and toxic content it has also allowed people whose perspectives should be heard in the media ecosystem but perhaps weren't in an era when you know three networks were run mostly by old white straight men it's allowed other people to have a say too it has been democratizing in that sense as well um and as I wrote recently, you know, we, we remember Watergate as a journalistic triumph, you know, investigative journalism bringing down the president. In fact, you know, the Watergate break-in happened in uh, the, the sort of early summer of 1972. By all accounts, large kind of gatekeeper media organizations, um, not, not all of them, but some of them did actually drop the ball on the story, did false equivalence. It didn't cover it as aggressively as they should. And in 1972, in the kind of relevant comparable election to Trump's re-election effort in 2020, I guess. Nixon won an absolutely storming huge, huge victory. And, and it was only a couple of years later that, that the scandal reached its due no more and he resigned. Um, you know, Trump did not win re-election. So again, I think it's a textured comparison and there are things that are definitely fair to compare there, but I don't think it's as easy as saying Nixon wouldn't resign today and Trump would have had to go back then. I think you have to take a lot of contingencies and pluses and minuses into account and I think it's hard yeah, it can be hard yeah. to do that sometimes. Yeah. Let me ask you about something that you have to do for your job, and I yeah. thankfully don't. Um, Fox, Fox News, um, its role um, during the coup attempt, since and currently at the hearings, what are they saying? Um, yeah, what, what, what do you hear from them? What do you see there? Um, what's interesting, I think, about Fox's coverage of the current hearings is that they refused to carry the first one live uh, when it was in prime time. They broadcast it instead on the Fox Business Network, which is much less watched than the main Fox News channel. Um, and instead, they had their kind of regular dose of Tucker Carlson and, and Sean Hannity, who kind of had a, a live feed of the committee in one corner of the screen while they mocked it as a, a pointless 
snary elitist witch hunt over the top of it. Um, since then, all of the hearings, though, have been in the daytime, and I believe that Fox News has broadcast them all uh, as they've happened. Um, and the commentary around it has had a kind of different tenor. Um, you know, there, there were some uh, comments from the Fox anchors who were hosting the surprise Cassidy Hutchinson testimony this week, for example, along the lines of, you know, like, wow, actually, this is a big deal. Um, maybe this does kind of move the needle. Um, then, of course, you go through to the evening, the opinion hosts come back on and they say it's all a load of nonsense and, and they're, you know, the most watched people on, on Fox News. Um, and what Another thing that's interesting is that while Fox has broadcast these hearings that happen during the day, it seems pretty clear that their audience is just turning off. Um, you know, the, the audience going up until the beginning of the hearing will be pretty much what it normally is for a daytime Fox audience. Then it will fall off a cliff and then viewers will kind of percolate back and then, and then come back strongly into the evening opinion programming. Um, whereas the effect has generally been the opposite on CNN and MSNBC, which have gained viewers during the hearing. So, yeah, they have broadcast them, but it, but it seems like a large portion of their viewership have decided they don't care and their minds are not going to be changed and are just sort of switching off. What I think is potentially more interesting or as interesting is some of the other conversation on, on the right, um, which is... Uh, that you see the editorial board of the New York Post saying that Trump should not run again. You see the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal saying that Trump was in the wrong on January 6th and shouldn't run again. I think, I can't remember what it was, but the New York Post's headline about Trump after the Hutchinson testimony was pretty damning on its front page. I mean, these are other arms of the, the same Murdoch media empire, and it seems like they're sort of it's, it's not something that's come completely from nowhere, but they're sort of using these hearings as an opportunity, I think, to exercise a pretty hard pivot to someone else should run in 2024 and you hear other sort of previously trump adjacent or at least trump curious republicans saying that um couching it in the language of electability maybe but saying you know trump would be electable in 2024 after this reputational damage now none of these places are prized for their or people are prized for their intellectual consistency and honesty so we'll have to wait and see what happens if and when trump does stand again um i, I imagine these these kind of weather vane type people could very easily swing back in a violently different direction but it is interesting to see, at least for now, that there are kind of cracks in this broader right-wing media um, armaments for Trump, even if the, the, the Carlsons and Hannity's of the world, who perhaps have the most influence, still seem to be mm -hmm. pretty keenly on board with trashing whatever the committee says. Yeah. So Pence um, is running for president, though, you know, so Seemingly. so it seems. Uh, we do have a question from a uh, listener. I don't know if you can answer it, but he's asking, have Trump and Pence reconciled at this point or are they still at odds? Do you, do you, do you know? Uh, I don't. I think the answer is pretty. I can't imagine uh, that, but. Still at odds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think that, yeah, I think, I, you know, they are, I imagine still at odds, I don't have any insights into their private relationship, but um, I think what's interesting is that Pence doesn't seem to want to talk about this, right? He just doesn't seem keen to testify in front of the uh, January State Committee or the public. Um, and really, you know, for all that some of the kind of uh, quote-unquote institutionalists on the right will cast him as a hero who was kind of the last dam between um, America, you know, and, and losing its democracy. Um, what he's actually said publicly since January 6th has been quite limited. I mean, really, it's been, it's been kind of self-evidently true statements about the fact that he lacked the legal authority to overturn the election. I, I personally haven't heard from him a, a kind of full-throated absolute rebuke of Trump and everything he stands for and the, you know, the terrible attempt to overthrow American democracy. It's really just been saying Trump was wrong. I had no legal authority to overturn the election, which is a factual statement. He didn't have the legal authority. So I, I definitely don't think that their rupture is one that Pence is keen to um, dwell on publicly or, or uh, you know, exacerbate. I think he wants to focus on other issues like abortion, um, sort of the play to his image as a social conservative. But yeah, it seems like he's, he's trying to position himself kind of implicitly as a, a post-Trump future for the party, um, while at the same time not foreclosing uh, Trump, you know, people who back Trump supporting him. I assume his pitch will be, I was a loyal vice president and now I'm charting my own course. Um, which, yeah, pretty clearly indicates that he's running even if we haven't had a, an announcement to that effect yet.
Yeah. There's at least uh, two more questions I want to um, touch on with you before the end of the hour. One is um, during the four years of uh, Trump's presidency, he was he was spewing lies time and again, and it was very obvious that these were lies, but the media were very careful not to call them lies, right? And to some degree, I still hear that happening, but have the media allowed themselves to use the word lie or to be um, really clear that they understand that the guy is not saying the truth? Yeah, I think you see it a lot more, a lot, lot more these days than you did when Trump came into office. I think the New York Times actually used the word lie about him in a news story twice, uh, either before the election or before he took office. But but it was kind of a big deal when they did it, right? It was like, it was a departure from what was seen as sort of New York Times style. Um, I, I think it's, if I recall correctly, I think the Washington Post didn't label any of his statements a lie until like the middle of 2018 even though they were running this huge fact-checked database of what they referred to as false or misleading statements that he'd made and they kind of i think got into the sort of tens of thousands of those by the time they actually used the 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 word lie in a news story um i think now it's it's something that has lost its sort of um lost its status as, as a kind of a taboo word uh, around, certainly at least around Trump, although you will kind of sometimes see tortured uh, euphemisms used instead of it still to this day in some news copy. But I'd say those those kind of euphemisms stand out to me more these days because there are fewer of them. Um, and if the word lie isn't maybe being used all the time, it's, it's at least a kind of, you know, often news stories will, or usually news stories will put put it in a way that, that leaves little doubt that that's what they mean. Um, I think it's, it kind of ties into what I was saying earlier a little bit too, because the reason for not saying lie was, well, we can't see inside his head, so we can't say what his motivation was. And I think that was always a hopelessly exaggerated standard of account- of journalistic accountability for a president of the United States, right? This is someone who has access to better information probably than anyone else on the planet or, or certainly you know up there with with the people who have the best access to information on the planet um and, and someone who is occupying an office of immense public trust and so it's not so much you know whether you can see inside their head and what their intention is but it's should they know something is true and if they say something that is not true and it's actually an honest mistake or, or something they believe to be true at the time. So they then come out and correct the record. Well, I mean, with Trump, obviously, he just said the same things over and over and over and over again. And I think you have seen a gravitation from that very, very high bar of we can't say he's lying because no one can see inside his heart to it's really obvious that he's lying and we're just going to say that. And, and and he should know better. And I think you see the same thing around around the January 6th debate, right? There's a lot of discussion as it pertains to the sort of legal outcome of the of the hearing or the potential legal outcome as to whether Trump knew he was lying about the election or not. I don't think that debate has stopped most outlets from calling his election statements lies. Um, but yeah, but you have this kind of debate about intent coming back to the fore again. And I think from a legal point of view, there is an extent to which... Um, you, you might need to prove some kind of foreknowledge. Um, but then there's also a legal standard that talks about what people should reasonably know. And I think that for journalists, that standard is, is absolutely paramount here. Trump doesn't really matter what Trump thought about whether he'd actually lost the election or not. His behavior was completely unhinged and, and unacceptable. And ultimately his actions and, and then the actions that were inspired by him don't depend on knowledge or, or foresight really i mean i think that the committee has laid out abundant evidence to suggest that he did know this was all a load of bs and went ahead with it anyway which might be legally important but but i think yeah i think it speaks to but you know a better more realistic standard of accountability for any president that was sort of talking in terms of his election lies being lies regardless of what was in his soul i think i think it does show maybe that some progress has been made in in five yeah. years finally let me ask you um, the other question that I really want to make sure that we cover. And, and the question is, um, do you feel that the media have been doing their job in covering the hearings? And I'm thinking, for example, about uh, the start of the war in Ukraine. Um, suddenly, all the media were just, I mean, it, 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 it was so strange to see how everybody seemed to have been really recruited to the cause um, 
in in a way that they didn't do about of course the wars that the United States has declared on pretty much everywhere in the world or other wars that are happening right now that most Americans don't even know about but suddenly everybody that I know is talking about Ukraine cares about Ukraine and the media just hammer it endlessly and um, I, I, I don't think I heard that kind of hammering when it comes to these hearings. And truly, what what is more important to American people than the fact that they might lose their democracy and live in a, you know, what can probably be called fascistic country? And we don't have much time, but if you can uh, discuss that in two and a half minutes or so. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, a different type of story to the Ukraine and, and foreign intervention more generally stories. I certainly think uh, the war, you know, while, while I think that covering what's going on in Ukraine is extremely important and, and a lot of the coverage has been really good, I have written about this and I, I would um, agree with you to an extent that the, there has been a, a glaring disparity between coverage of that and coverage of wars elsewhere in the world, including wars, you know, that that America has no involvement in, but certainly also conflicts that they have had some involvement in or direct involvement. Um, So, but but I think, I think maybe those stories are best compared against each other and maybe not against the hearings, just in the sense that, again, we're not, we're not dealing with a mystery here. We're not dealing with something that happened overseas. We're, We're dealing with a very, very visible assault that everyone knew about, that everyone saw at the time, that was like a huge defining domestic politics story and in many ways has remained so. Um, That's of course not to say that like, and I think it is important to note that while I'm saying that we should be very clear that these hearings don't actually need to happen to establish what happened that day, it's not some kind of mystery. They are important to a broader process of accountability and they are important for laying out what happened and and bringing it back to the top of the news cycle and and in a way that, maybe it's true to say that the, the actual assault itself kind of did somewhat recede. Um, and I, but, I, but I think actually that has mostly been the case across the major news outlets, the sort of fact-based news outlets that I've been following. I think all of the major networks have taken the hearings, have had special programming around them. Um, obviously the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony on Tuesday was, was a huge, huge deal. I guess my bigger concern is that while there has been a lot of coverage, it doesn't kind of get dragged down this road where we're sort of trying to uncover some new mystery about January 6th, where we're very clearly situating everything we're learning and everything we're relearning um, against a kind of very, very clear backdrop that we all know what happened and we all know who did it in the, in the broadest sense of the term. And I see some of the coverage that kind of is treating, you know, did he grab his steering wheel as a kind of hinge controversy on which this whole thing rests. I think that's maybe my concern more that we're seeing kind of any avoidance of the story. I think it's been a pretty huge story across, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, across most of the media that I consume. That yeah. I consume, sorry. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, John. Also, among other things, he writes the uh, daily newsletter of the Columbia Journalism Review, The Media Today. I uh, recommend reading it. It's very interesting. Thank you so much, John. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye, and thanks to Summer and Richelle. I'm Esti Dinur. Stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye bye.